Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Thanks for starting your week with us. On Friday, the Supreme Court issued a stay on a lower court ruling. The stay ensures that for now, the abortion pill, Mifepristone, will remain widely available. Now, Mifepristone was first approved as safe and effective for ending pregnancies more than 20 years ago. But earlier this month, a U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who's a federal judge in Texas, appointed by former President Donald Trump, suspended the FDA's approval of Mifepristone. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit challenged part of Kaczmarek's ruling, leaving Mifepristone legal, but making it harder to access. Friday's decision by the Supreme Court halted those Fifth Circuit Court restrictions and reestablished the status quo. But the decision is temporary. Now, this is the first time the Supreme Court has taken action on abortion since overturning Roe v. Wade last year. But because this was an emergency decision and not a full case, the court did not provide reasoning, noting only that Justices Thomas and Alito dissented. Joining us now is Leah Lippman, professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and co-host of the Crooked Media podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Professor Lippman, welcome back to The Takeaway. Thanks so much for having me. Let's just have a quick reminder on how this challenge to Mifepristone started. Who brought this case, the initial case in Texas? It was initially brought by a group of doctors that called themselves the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. This was a new organization that actually only first incorporated last summer in 2022, and they chose to incorporate in a very specific place, Amarillo, Texas. And Amarillo, Texas happens to be the place where Judge Matthew Kaczmarek is the only judge in a particular division in federal court. So by incorporating there, they knew that case would be heard by Judge Matthew Kaczmarek. It suggests that despite the pretty lofty name, that this is an organization founded for the purpose of uh, challenging Mifepristone. Yes, that's kind of been their main shtick uh, since they founded. They brought this case and the principal allegation was their members did not want to treat people who experienced any complications from mifepristone. Now, there were some other plaintiffs in the case, but the main plaintiff in the case is the organization that's specifically incorporated in this location so that this mifepristone case could be heard by the judge who everybody knows has a long history of opposing LGBTQ equality as well as abortion rights. Remind us again about the Fifth Circuit. What is the reputation of that court? The Fifth Circuit is an extremely conservative court. The three-judge panel that heard the Mifepristone case included two nominees by former President Donald Trump, as well as a nominee by former President Bush. 
And President Trump radically reshaped that court by appointing pretty extreme reactionary ideologues. And he was able to do that because of a tradition whereby presidents consult the home state senators about the judges that they appoint to a given court. And so when President Trump went to appoint judges in Texas, you know, Senator Ted Cruz and Judd Cornyn were completely fine appointing judges who were radical ideologues and reactionary judges and were ultimately willing to allow part of this anti-Mifepristone ruling go into effect. Now, how in the world did SCOTUS end up in this mix so swiftly, right? Help us again to remember what these kinds of emergency rulings are. So the case made its way to the Supreme Court on what is known as the court's shadow docket. And that's a phrase that just means any applications to the court outside of kind of the normal course of cases where the court will typically grant a case, hear argument in the case several months later, and then issue a decision several months after that. The shadow docket is for, among other things, requests for emergency relief. And that's what the federal government government was seeking here, emergency relief in the form of a stay. Were you or other court observers, Supreme Court observers, surprised by this decision? I wasn't that surprised by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision for a few reasons. One is the legal claims at issue in the case ranging from both whether the FDA was correct and had adequate evidence to approve mifepristone and adopt subsequent you know, regulations that it chose to do so. That legal claim was weak, but so too were the claims that a federal court even should have heard this case at all. You add to that the fact that this ruling would have unleashed complete and total chaos on the pharmaceutical industry in addition to, you know, women who need access to medication abortion, there was a really unprecedented push by not only doctors, but also pharma, you know, penning joint letters, as well as filing briefs in the case saying, look, if federal courts can just yank a drug off the market that's been in circulation for several decades, that's going to make it impossible for pharmaceutical companies to actually, you know, circulate their drugs once they have been approved. On top of that, this decision garnered swift and immediate condemnation, with some people even, you know, saying publicly, including both a senator and congressional representatives, that the Biden administration should consider not even abiding by a decision in that case. So coupled all of those things together, you know, the swift public outcry challenging the court's authority with the weakness of the legal claims and the chaos that this ruling would have unleashed didn't make it ultimately that surprising that there weren't five votes to allow some version of this ruling to go into effect. This is not sort of the court wringing its hands about its decision about Dobbs and wondering if it did the wrong thing and, and handing back to the states the ability to regulate what had been a constitutionally recognized right for pregnant people to terminate their pregnancies for 
five decades. This is about like those competing interests of the authority of the court, the courts, right? Also conservative interests in business, perhaps in pharmaceuticals, right? Like, I guess I'm fascinated if this becomes like the fissure point where, for example, Alito and Thomas demonstrate that no, for them, their ideological commitment is is directly in line with this anti-abortion stance, despite the other chaos that could ensue. I mean, it was more than a little ironic that the author of the opinion in Dobbs, which overruled Roe versus Wade and professed a commitment to allowing issues of abortion care to be resolved in the democratic process, was apparently the most eager to allow a federal court-ordered ban on the current medication abortion protocol go into effect. I mean, Justice Alito wrote the opinion in Dobbs saying, this is going to get the federal courts out of the business of abortion. It's just going to be resolved in the political process only to less than a year later say, well, actually, federal courts can effectively order a nationwide ban on a particular abortion procedure. So given Justice Alito's kind of history of jurisprudence, you know, he is not one to kind of abide by statements or principles in prior cases. He is very ideological and results driven. And in previous cases, both he and Justice Thomas have kind of been willing to bend over backwards to give conservative litigants, as well as before that, the Trump administration, basically everything that they asked for on both the shadow docket as well as in other cases. So while I wasn't surprised at the ultimate ruling in the case, the fact that the Supreme Court stayed the lower court's decision, I also wasn't surprised that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas said, yeah, we're basically fine with this. Hmm. Quick break here. We'll be right back with more on the legal battle over Mifepristone access right after this. I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to The Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We're back with University of Michigan law professor Leah Littman. So now it's going to go back to Fifth Circuit. Is that right? There will be more decision making there? Yes. So the appeals process is still ongoing. This was only about whether there would be a stay during the appeal. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit will hear oral argument in a few weeks in the case reviewing, again, in the normal appeals process, the district court's order. And then after the argument, at some point, the Fifth Circuit will issue a decision. And then whoever loses could ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case. But no matter what the Fifth Circuit decides here, that decision is not going to go into effect until the U.S. Supreme Court has the opportunity to review it because the U.S. Supreme Court wrote the stay to last until after the Fifth Circuit's decision in the case. So what does that mean today for people who may need to access Mifepristone? People are unfortunately left to the patchwork of state laws regarding access to abortion, including medication abortion. You know, one of the most pernicious things about Judge Kismark's ruling, as well as the Fifth Circuit's, is it had the potential to not only clamp down on abortion access in, you know, more conservative leaning states with restrictive abortion laws, but also any state in the country 
given that if you impose restrictions on mifepristone, you know, it can't be used anywhere. And so what this decision does is it basically restores access to mifepristone if you happen to live in a state where you can access mifepristone. Now, of course, people that live in states with restrictive abortion laws can and still will access mifepristone, whether that's by traveling out of state for an initial in-person visit or through telehealth or through the mail. But what it does is basically just revert back to the patchwork of state-by-state laws that determine access to abortion. And so if you live in a state with less restrictive abortion laws, you can continue to access mifepristone in the way you could previously. There's one final wrinkle I want to make sure that um, we bring in here, and that is the case moving through in Washington state. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So the Washington state case was a case filed by several attorneys general in Democratic-leaning states, and they sued the FDA to challenge the existing restrictions on mifepristone, arguing that those restrictions actually were too restrictive. We don't actually have a decision in the case about whether the restrictions are justified on the basis of evidence or whether the FDA needs to loosen them. But that court did issue an order actually on the same day that Judge Kesmarek issued his ruling. And the order from the Washington court said the FDA cannot alter the status quo. That is, it can't impose additional restrictions while the Washington court figures out whether the existing restrictions are warranted. Now, the federal government could still appeal that Washington decision. It has not yet done so. And there are also a group of Republican-leaning states who want to intervene in the case so that they can challenge the Washington court's ruling. Thus far, the Washington court has not permitted them to do so. But basically, we're kind of waiting for a decision in that case about whether the existing restrictions are warranted, as well as a possibility that the federal government might appeal appeal that case up the federal courts. Leah Lippman is professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and co-host of the Crooked Media podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Thanks for being here again, Leah. Thank you for having me.